this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today I speak with the editors of Abjection Incorporated, Mediating the Politics of Pleasure and Violence, published in 2020 by Duke University Press. Building on Julia Kristeva's Powers of Horror, an essay on objection, Maggie Hennefeld and Nick Salmon have drawn together a group of essays that explore the object and its importance to modern social, political, and artistic life. I talked to them about how the collection came about, as well as the importance of each essay in presenting a useful illustration of objection. We also tie some of the material into current events, particularly in the COVID-19 pandemic and political world. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Maggie Hennefeld and Nick Salmond. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Nick. Hello. Hi, Joel. Thanks for joining me. Uh, The book we're talking about, Abjection Incorporated, Mediating the Politics of Pleasure and Violence, talking to two people who were the editors of this book. And the first one, well, as as an introduction to the book, I want to give them both a chance to talk a little bit about their background uh, just uh, where they are now and and what led them to first off uh, what they've done what they're doing and then also we'll start to talk about what led them to de- decide to put together this book. The first person we're going to talk to is Maggie Hennefeld, who um, I've actually talked to two other times on this podcast. She is officially the first person who's been on three times now. Um, I don't know if that's just because uh, she's prolific. Or she's easy to get interviews with. I'm not sure what the right answer is. Anyway. Um, Definitely the latter. Okay. There we go. And she's the first person who jumped up and down figuratively when I asked her to be on an interview. I don't know. It was strange. Anyway, um, I wanted to talk about your backgrounds, but Maggie in particular, and Nick, I'll give you the same opportunities. Maggie, if you don't know, uh, lives and works in Twin Cities, uh, University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and therefore Maggie, your background is important anyway. Going into this book, but mm. I also think it's important to talk to you briefly about the situation as it is. Obviously, both of you ran into unusual situations this year with your teaching when COVID hit, and suddenly universities and other schools had to come up with new methods to to continue their classwork. So you already had that to deal with. And then, of course, quite 
terribly. You also, you know, you, more than two weeks ago now, um, have dealt there in Minnesota with the issues related to the to the death of George Floyd, and obviously Minnesota, you know, Twin Cities was the epicenter of that, since that's where it happened. So, I'd like to give you a chance to just sort of talk a little bit about yourself, but also give us a little bit about what it's been like for you personally and where you feel like you are right now. Yeah. Well, first of all, Joel, thank you so much for having me back on the podcast. Um, it's I'm, I'm honored to be the first one to complete the trifecta with you. It's been quite a journey, but always a pleasure. Um, so yeah, I'm here in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities at the kind of initial epicenter of the global uprising. Um, the last couple of weeks since George Floyd's murder at the hands of four Minneapolis police officers have been extremely intense, an emotional roller coaster. Obviously, we you know talk about abjection, like 400 years of slavery and white supremacism and violence and anger just boiling over and exploding. So given the tremendous uncertainty of the current moment, um, you know, I'm filled with, on the one hand, horror for all of the images I've been watching because um, I, I haven't been, uh, I've been to some protests here on the ground, but only the peaceful ones during the daytime. I haven't been kind of in the thick of the violence that is really we're at the other end of that now uh, in the Twin Cities, but it mostly took place after curfew. Though even peaceful protests during the day, you saw footage of armed police officers unprovoked tear gassing protesters who are peacefully demonstrating, um, uh, you know, um, hitting them with flash grenades and rubber bullets and uh, batons. You know, we've seen a lot of horrific violence on our screens, if not up close and in person over the last couple of weeks. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm filled with this strange, recently unfamiliar sensation called hope. Um, last Sunday at a rally in Powderhorn Park in Minneapolis, a veto-proof majority of Minneapolis City Council members pledged to disband the police. And this was a day after a massive defund the police rally in Northeast Minneapolis. So I feel like because everything's up in the air, because we're having all of these uncomfortable conversations and terms that I thought were sort of like rarefied psychoanalytic concepts, like unconscious violence, are now common sense and like Twitter memes and hashtags for better or for worse, right? It's um, This is part of the gesture of abjection incorporated when all that, um, which was cast off, excreted, you know, disowned from, um, you know, not I, uh, uh, everything that was opposed to myself, the I as kind of a collective entity is now being incorporated into the social body, but also with the risk of co-optation. That was sort of the pun of our book title. So long story short to swing back around to the book, but also to your initial question. Um, yeah, shit is going down. The world is exploding. I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful and um, I'm passionate to see where it goes because this seems like it seems like for everything that's horrible, the moment is ripe for um, transformation and justice more so than any other moment, perhaps within my lifetime. Well, uh, 
<laughs> well said. I wanted to make sure I gave you a chance because I figured you would have these kind of thoughts. Um, of course, I'm a little older than even Nick, and I remember the 60s demonstrations quite well. And the main difference that I've seen, just from my experience in reading and understanding, is the groups of people who are protesting now are much more widespread as far as race, ethnicity, color, uh, age. It is much more than it was even back then. And so I think, if anything, that's where I think if there's going to be change, that's where hopefully um, that's going to prove why. Uh, Nick, um, (laughs) don't ask you to follow that up, but uh, (laughs) we have to. Um, Obviously, you're in Toronto, so I'm not sure how things went with COVID with you versus what uh, we went through in the States. So if you want to talk a little bit about what what these last months have been like for you and also if there's anything you want to add about what's Canada, how Canada has reacted to the recent events here in the United States. Well, I, I think it's important to say that as much as Canada likes to think of itself as different, and I'll be quite honest, I'm an American living in Canada, so uh, they may disavow what I have to say about it. Um, uh you know, the the week that the, uh, George Floyd was killed, soon afterwards, uh, a woman, uh, Regis uh, Korczynski-Paquette, uh, uh, fell or was thrown off of her balcony while police were present here in Toronto um, uh, under suspicious circumstances that are now under investigation. So it's not like this is an American problem that we watch with, with horror from afar. There's plenty of problems with policing here in Canada. And so my hope is that this is a moment that we don't try to play the game of abjecting America in order to make ourselves as Canadians feel better. Um, And so, you know, we're undergoing uh, certainly not the level of uh, protest that's been happening in the States, but there's been protest and discussion and serious consideration about uh, how we learn from and grow from this moment. Um, And so uh, that's, that's around Black Lives Matter. And I'm actually very fortunate. Uh, I run uh, the um, aptly named Center for the Study of the United States at the University of Toronto. We have our eyes on you at all times. Uh, (laughs) And uh, we use this, the recent events, in order to mount the first of what I hope is a series of conversations with students first. We started with students, and then we're going to open it up to larger groups of people later. um, Just to talk through these issues, we brought together scholars from... uh, Education, uh, history, um, uh, sociology, uh, communication, to talk about their, uh, the history of rebellions in the United States, going all the way back to uh, the Boston Tea Party, of course. <laughs> There's a long history of rebellion. It's only a riot when the wrong people are doing it, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been a really uh, amazing discussion. I, I so appreciate hearing what the next generation has to say and their, and their thoughts on it. So I think you're absolutely right. Part of what is making this different from the, what I witnessed in the 60s and 70s uh, is the degree to which, from the ground up, it is a youth-led movement and, and the inspiration and the anger and the desire for change uh, is coming from them as much as from anybody. And I, I actually take great inspiration from that. And I will say also that in terms of COVID, uh, I think it's actually, it has fueled a lot of the desire for change because we've all had to be sitting still for so very long. Um, 
and not actually going about business as usual. Our, all of our lives have been abjected at this moment. That uh, when the possibility of change presents itself, it seems undeniable. And so I'm, I'm hopeful as well. Um, I kind of share Maggie's sense that optimism is, is perhaps uh, overextending oneself, but that being hopeful and moving with hope is the only way we can go forward with this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it could be worse. We could be out there uh, rioting to get our hair done again. You know, it's it's interesting how that start. You know, that was going on, and then suddenly somebody said, "Well, let's have something really important that we're going to protest about." So, so Nick, you've got quite a bit of experience. You've written many, many books and and articles, and and what I found interesting in reviewing the kinds of material that you've written in the past uh, is that uh, you definitely have written a great deal about uh, popular culture and um, current events and things like that. Obviously, uh, you've written books about Disney, and you also wrote a book about blackface, which, of course, is uh, important for the material that we've talked about. And you actually edited a, a collection of articles about professional wrestling, which I found an interesting uh, idea that we're now able to uh, study on a sociological or historical or uh, other kinds of level, the concept of, uh, of professional wrestling. So what led, and I'll, I'm coming to you first with this, uh, what led to the discussion between you and I assume it, I mean, which way did it go that you and Maggie decided that this was a topic objection that you wanted to develop a collection about? Well, uh, Maggie, correct me if I get any of this wrong. Um, Maggie was a postdoc at the university of Toronto when we first met doing some, uh, some of the fantastic work that became uh, more than one book actually. Um, and, uh, uh, she was associated with our the department that I was in, and we had a number of discussions about it. And I just I thought this is an intellect that I want to work with. This is a this is a mind that is sharp uh, on top of things, uh, and with a perspective that I found made me grow as a scholar. And so uh, I was uh, beginning my next project, which is on um, vernacular media uh, in in the Cold War. Um, and by vernacular media, I mean things like uh, comic books and um, everything from comic books to graphic arts to uh, to stand-up comedy, the things that are kind of on the peripheries of what it would normally be called art, but which many people consider art. Um, and in doing that research, I began to really kind of notice that there were a lot of figures, particularly in the underground comics scene, which you probably remember from the 60s, um, who adopted a position of being on the, like purposely being on the margins of society when they didn't have to be. And, you know, this sort of began probably most prevalently in the post-war period with the Beats, uh, people like Kerouac, Ginsburg, um, uh, Kelsey, uh, Ken Kesey, excuse me, uh, and such. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting that these people have the opportunity to be part of the mainstream and yet they, they decided to identify themselves with people who don't necessarily have a choice about whether they're Abjected or not, and Maggie and I began to talk about it. Uh, and um, Maggie can talk about how it intersects with her work uh, with women in silent film and comedy. Um, and we decided to put together a couple of uh, conference panels on it. 
the first one was at uh, the Modern Language Association. And Maggie, do you remember what year that was? That was actually 2000. It was December 2013, and it was before I did the postdoc. And I think it was even before that year, the genesis of the project, because I remember I was an ABD grad student on the job market when I presented in that MLA panel you organized, because it was like right after I had a preliminary interview for a job I didn't end up getting in one of the like, you know, um, uh, claustrophobic hotel rooms in which there was a fly infestation. <laughs> Talk about abjection. And then I was very relieved to go to the open air conference room in which we were talking about abjection, but at least not being pestered by Drosophila. I'm sorry, I got the order wrong. That's right. I forget. Yeah. Uh, Joel, if, if you're not familiar with the, the um, job interviews uh, procedure at, at Modern Language Association or MLA, they actually invite people up to hotel rooms and you have to sit on the edge of the bed and answer questions. <laughs> that, that panel led to another panel uh, at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And uh, we decided to put together Sunday a proposal. Sunday at 9 a.m. Sunday yeah. at 9 a.m. Another Always example of that direction. Um, and uh, uh, out of that came uh, the proposal that we presented to Duke. Um, and then things got weird. Um, <laughs> Maggie, that's my hand over there. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> I feel like uh, the coyote, like dangling from one toe off the edge of a cliff right now. Um, I, I'll try not to look down. Um, yeah, I'm, well, first of all, Nick, thanks so much for your, your generosity, kind of summarizing why, you know, you invited me on board to co-edit the project with you. And I was a very newly minted PhD uh, doing my postdoc at UToronto when Nick invited me to come aboard and was super flattered by the invitation, um, you know, well aware of and a big fan of Nick's work already. And I think we first collaborated together at an SCMS panel on comedy, um, also with Ro Rob King, uh, one of the contributors to the volume who wrote this phenomenal essay on the kind of dialectics between abjection and the absurd in uh, Louis C.K.'s work, which was an essay he pretty uh, thoroughly rewrote, um, you know, in the wake of hashtag Me Too and, um, you know, the, the revelations of like, no, um, uh, C.K. talking about his sexual predation is not just, you know, not just a, a tight set gimmick, but actually something that, that he was doing and in, inflicting on a lot of women in the comedy world. So um, Rob, rewrote that essay and, and I think it's a brilliant piece. It's our volume closer. But yeah, where what then things got weird. I guess Rob rewriting the essay was part of the weirdness. Another part of so yeah, the most edited volumes are a long haul. And a lot of the essays in this volume address really contemporary politics and popular culture, right? My own piece is about inside Amy Schumer. Um, which is a departure for me because like Nick was saying, I usually write on like early 20th century, silent cinema, fil early film archives, slapstick comedy, feminism, which is what my first book, Spectres of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians is about. Um, but here, you know, I dabbled in the contemporary. Uh, Michelle Cho writes about contemporary um, uh, uh, female grotesque comedy in South Korean cinema. Uh, Rebecca Wanzo writes about uh, Lena Dunham's Girls and Issa Rae's early web series, um, Awkward Black Girl. 
So there are a lot of really present facing essays in this volume. And, you know, the, the last however many years have just been characterized by a dizzying onslaught of constant change and novelty, which is, of course, a hallmark of modernity. But recently, and maybe this is a super presentist hot take, even more so, like, you know, yesterday feels like another planet away because so much is happening all the time. So I think that was part of um, why we went through so many rounds of revisions, both in our co-written introduction and also a lot of the contributors' essays who are constantly rethinking, reworking, revising um, uh, their argument and, you know, just relevant examples to discuss um, as events were quickly unfolding on the ground. Of course, the biggest of which being the 2016 election, the uh, coronation of hair agent orange, rat king, Donald kiss Trump, whatever. I just strung together a nonsensical sequence of um, syllables, but that's fine. You know, Trump really brings it out in you. Um, and that totally provoked us to overhaul the, the introduction and just, the, okay, this is a moment in which a lot of internalized abjection that we've been excreting, displacing, keeping at bay, pinning on the other is now just blowing up in our face and we really need to theorize this. Yeah, if I, if I can jump onto that, um, and I call him the toddler in chief these days. Um, <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, that was a moment when we realized we had been kind of conceiving of abjection as this kind of move that people on the left or with left sympathies or who are resistant to popular or uh, mainstream culture were using in order to distance themselves and make themselves special. And then suddenly we saw the rise of the alt right and Donald Trump using the exact same techniques. And we thought, we really have underestimated the place of objection in current social thought. Um, and so we had to kind of go back to the drawing board and talk to our authors about going back to the drawing board, mm -hmm. along with Rob being the most um, prevalent one because the Louis C.K. thing happened after he had completed what he thought he had completed his, his essay and then he had to go back and redo the whole thing. And then we suddenly had this much more expansive understanding of abjection as contestation uh, and certainly that is the case right now. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's why the kind of the volume was extended even longer than edited volumes usually are. It was originally called The Abject Objection, which I thought was a funny title, but can, can I say this? Edit this out if this is too gauche. The Duke editorial board voted down our original title, so we changed it to the uh, uh, witty pun, Abjection Incorporated. They don't control the podcast. <laughs> That's fine. It's it, I think it's it's useful because a lot of our podcasts are based around academic works, you know, books that are from academic publishers. So I think a little bit of background of that may be useful to other listeners as well, just so they know a little bit of behind the scenes. Nick, I was very happy to hear you talk about uh, the '60s comic, you know, the the comics system and how things changed in the 60s and 70s, partly because I'm from Cleveland, spent most of my life there. And Harvey Picar is, is and always will be a personal favorite of mine. And frankly, uh, I he doesn't get even, you know, he's been gone for quite a while now. And I sometimes think he doesn't get the, uh, the true, um, that he deserves the true, um, uh, you know, 
greatness that he was. So I certainly am quite familiar with uh, with the whole concepts of that. Um, I want to. We need to start doing some defining, obviously, because as I said before, the book starts on you know builds around a very detailed uh, theori- theoretical discussions and related to psychology and sociology, and I think it'd be helpful to give people to listeners a better chance to understand the book if we can start talking about the term object objection obviously we've heard the word object in the past abject a b j e j e c t the one way you probably hear it the most is somebody will say with abject horror is probably the way you've heard the word abject the most but the term objection is probably one that most people don't even understand what it means so not to throw you into the into the deep end, but who would like to start talking a little bit about trying to define what objection is? <clears throat> well, I will. Um, uh, as we say in the introduction, there are like two kind of central texts or ideas about objection that we begin from and then move out from in our work and in the work of the other people in the volume. <clears throat> and the first is Julia Kristeva's Powers of Horror from uh, 1982. And the second is George Bataille's um, abjection and uh, abjection uh, and miserable forms and miserable forms. Yeah, thank you. From 1934, yeah. um, and they're two very different takes. So, in a nutshell, and to oversimplify, because powers uh, of horror is an entire book, um, uh, Kristeva is kind of talking about how we come into being as people, how we begin to develop an ego, and how we have to separate ourselves primarily from the mother because it's a psychoanalytic term um, and that we have to kind of cast off everything that is not me and and abject it cast it out to be to translate the the latin and away from us so you know the abject is often uh, reduced to piss and shit and snot and blood and cum and all the things that we think of as gross as once they're outside of our body. Now, when they're in us, they are us. And then when they're out of us, they are no longer us and they are pollution and they have to be cast off. And then Bataille, right long before uh, Kristeva, has a much more uh, political and sociological kind of take on the meaning of abjection. And you have to remember that 1934, Bataille is in France. He's writing at, at the dawn of the rise of the Nazis and Nazi Germany's takeover of Europe. Um, And he describes the abject as those parts of society that sovereignty gets rid of in order to secure itself in the world uh, at the political level. So it's the poor, it's uh, people of color, it's um, other abject and marginalized groups who are the abject that allows a state to feel whole and secure. And so given the situation we're in right now, this is very relevant because the kind of white supremacist state that we live in has very much depended on the notion of uh, people of color as other than and less than in order to feel secure. And, you know, the, probably the best example of this was the, the video that I assume we've all seen of uh, Amy Cooper in Central Park, right, where um, uh, uh, Christian Cooper, a black man, asks her to leash her dog um, and she immediately calls the police. and says she's being attacked by an African-American man, knowing that by doing that, she has weaponized the state to take him out, to kill him. That is a perfect example of kind of that kind of abjection that the tie is talking about. 
Um, Maggie, do you want to add anything else onto that? Yeah. So, I mean, we open the introduction, not it or the abject objection. Above all, in Kristeva's terms, the abject is kind of a nauseating, cast out state of being, and it's that which is opposed to the I. So in a kind of psychoanalytic vocabulary, Kristeva says, um, the abject is neither subject nor object. It's kind of a repulsive condition to which one is reduced. Um, it's a place of dwelling. It's nauseating, um, even an existential crisis. But like um, uh, Nick was saying, Kristeva associates the abject with the kind of disciplinary process of subject formation, right? Drawing boundaries between self and other, um, between ego and unconscious, um, and between, you know, the, the child um, uh uh, negotiating kind of distance and separation from the mother's body. So the maternal itself is sort of a trope or location of abjection in um, uh, Kristeva's feminist psychoanalytic paradigm. And before that, you know, um, Bataille, uh, particularly vis-a-vis um, -vis associations between abjection and the um, nation state's violent um, violence perpetuating body politic, Bataille's writings on abjection and miserable forms in the 30s amid the rise of um, fascism in Europe has certainly come to the fore again. So that was sort of the framework, right? Um, the state politics of abjection via Bataille versus, you know, psychoanalytic um, uh, sexual gender and boundary formation via Kristeva, um, you know, most kind of uh, famously articulated in her uh, early 80s book, Powers of Horror. That was our starting point, And that was kind of, um, uh, you know, like the, the two theoretical poles we were working through. But what we really wanted to do in the volume is go beyond, um, you know, psychoanalysis versus um, modernist aesthetic theory or Marxist materialism. Um, so one of our blurbers, Linda Williams, professor emerita at University of California, I just, this is like, a, if you'll indulge me just a bit, um, she says in her blurb, who would have thought that 40 years after Kristeva's powers of horror, so much insight for our times could be discovered through the lens of abjection, exclamation mark. So I'm still a little bit cavelling uh, in response to that blurb, but um, in the introduction, I mean, we, we try to cover a lot of ground, both contemporary politics and popular culture. We talk a bit about Black Lives Matter and how that um, uh, protest rallying cry has been co-opted by its very opposite, right? Like, what does it mean when hashtags like Blue Lives Matter or men's rights or human right, human, men's rights or human rights are now going viral? Um, and also thinking of like the theories of abjection are really grounded in a kind of concept of the universal subject, which is something we're sort of cautious of or wary of now, um, given it's, uh, you know, who, whom does that universal subject of say psychoanalysis or semiotic theory represent um, in, you know, given uh, the need for really intersectional theorizations um, and mobilizations of uh, uh, subjectivity. So we, we kind of explore that in tandem with some recent discourses and debates in 
uh, new materialism as opposed to old Marxist materialism, new materialist theory like object-oriented ontology. Um, and then a lot of our contributors really just are working with a completely different um, uh, set of theoretical texts than the um, uh, Kristeva, Bataille um, um, framework, like um, Rajuta Mehta in her essay on um, uh, South Asian state uh, partition uh, in the late 40s and um, uh, kind of cosmic irony in the literature of Sadat Manto, and as well as um, uh, archives of um, uh, violent state partition uh, photography looks to anti-colonial thought, like writings of uh, Frantz Fanon, um, as well as more recent uh, critical race theory by Catherine McKittrick to kind of um, articulate a new idea of uh, abjection. Whereas another contributor, um, James Cahill, who is another person who like very thoroughly rewrote his essay in the later phases of the volume, um, he, he's really focused on Bataille, but a very different kind of Bataille than we have through the 34 Objection essay. He looks to um, uh, early works by Bataille, such as The Big Toe, to think about uh, the kind of dialectics between the human and animality in Bataille's early work. So it's quite a smorgasbord of different theoretical discourses. And we wanted to, you know, like pay credit where credit is due to the formative thinkers on this topic, but really like um, take the conversation well beyond them. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. One of the things I've noticed in reviewing the, the, the various essays is that you made a definite decision... I assume it was an action. <laughs> I'm sure you decided to go this way to, to make sure that this is an international volume. While there are some that are North America in, you know, push, you know, idea, there are plenty where you made sure, for example, there's essays about South Korea, China, mm -hmm. uh, lots of different places, which is great because it, it means that uh, you're showing this as a more international, worldwide issue. Uh, issues rather than just depending on um, material that might be a little more local. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think the, the, the move to consider abjection as a, a theoretical tool, the, its first iteration was in, in, after Kristeva published in 82, there was a lot of work in North American feminist uh, studies, particularly around horror film, that tended to look at, at objection as that which was done to people uh, in the very specific context of uh, the um, American cinema. And I think what we were trying to do in the volume is very much talk about it as that not, not, not just that which is inflicted upon people, but that which is also uh, navigated and uh, created in, in artistic forms around in different parts of the world. Um, so yeah, thank you for point, like pointing that out. It's absolutely true. Um, that's it. So, so where did, <laughs> uh, where did you, um, 
how did you first together uh, all draw together your uh, contributors? I always ask that when it's an edited collection because uh, for many writers, especially depending on uh, academic writers, that's the slightly easier way sometimes to get published is through edited collections because um, you know it's easier than trying to get a book uh, deal and in other ways. So. Where did you make your pitches to try to get people? How many of them were folks that you had already known were writing on the topic? Uh, Maggie, why don't you start on this one? Sure. Um, so the a, a lot of the contributors to this volume are people who are are our friends and uh, who's who we've been in conversation with, who've been you know interlocutors for a long time, and whose work we really really respect. So obviously, you know, the international purview of the volume. Um, was super important to us because, you know, Nick and I are both kind of Americanist in our uh, research objects and more kind of American, Euro North American Eurocentric in um, the kinds of uh, theories that we um, uh, explore in our research. So, um, you know, obviously having uh, chapters on South Korean cinema, um, uh, uh, 1950s um, socialist satirical comedy in China uh, by Yiman Wang and, um, you know, uh, uh, Indian photography and literature, uh, Japanese shoujo manga. That was, um, you know, obviously crucial for us. Uh, but also, you know, uh, Rajuta Mehta, um, who wrote the, the wonderful chapter on anti-colonial folly and the reversals of repatri rep repatriation, um, in late 40s uh, South Asia. She was my friend from grad school. She was in um, a co cohort, I guess, two years after mine. And I just like was extremely aware of her brilliance and immediately wanted to make sure she, uh, and, and also how relevant uh, the kind of topic and theme of abjection was to her research. So, um, you know, she leapt to mind immediately for me. Um, there are a few folks now who ended up at University of Toronto, yeah. which was funny because they weren't initially there when we invited them to participate in the volume. But Raju Tomeita is indeed now an assistant professor at U of T, as is Michelle Cho, um, who wasn't initially either. And Michelle was also someone I knew from grad school at Brown University. Michelle did her postdoc there. And I actually TA'd for her course on extreme Asian cinema, which is obviously a topic, you know, um, East Asian genre cinemas in which like violence, abjection, um, graphic extremities in one way or another are uh, sort of um, depicted and thematized. So I think a lot of it happened through uh, happenstance. Um, friend networks, which is something that um, I'm ambivalent about, not via this project, but just kind of moving forward. How do we uh, resist the impulse to keep kind of reproducing the same academic networks of collaboration and influence, you know, the same people we talk to anyway, inviting them to contribute and how to broaden that call because we did initially issue a CFP and the proposals we got just, I mean, to put it bluntly, weren't, weren't viable. Um, they either had a take on objection that would make the volume incoherent or like, approach the topic in, a, I guess, a kind of fetishistic way that um, was really, really, really not what we were going for uh, critically uh, in this collection. But but yeah, I mean, and this is something I'm struggling with. And it, have, it also relates to conversations we've been having a lot 
in the last two weeks, how do we decolonize the university? Um, you know, not just in a kind of tokenizing way of diversity, multiculturalism and inclusion, but how do we really just like blow open our kind of networks and genealogies of collaboration and influence? So it's not just, you know, the same voices speaking together over and over again. But that said, I think it worked out well in, in, in this volume. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, like, uh, true that. But on the other hand, it's not like it's a whole bunch of white people like you and me. Maggie. In fact, you can't mm -hmm. even see you, you and I are white in the same way, right? So sure. our network may could, may could stand a little bit more decolonization, but it's actually, you know, it's a pretty diverse network. And the other part of this that was important for me is that a lot of the people who came to this volume came to us through uh, conversations at conferences. Either we were on panels together or we were uh, talking after panels. We were hearing each other's work. Um, and, I, and I just found some of the people on it, Tom Lamar in particular, I've always found his work really inspirational. I've always wanted to work with him. Um, uh, Rob King is another person. He used to be a colleague of mine at U of T and is now at Columbia. Um, are, uh, are people that I just, you know, whose work I so admired uh, that we talked about the stuff long before we actually began to put the volume together. Same thing for Rebecca Wanzo, who just has a new, a new great new book out on race and caricature. Mm -hmm. um, the content of our, our caricature, which I highly recommend. Um, uh, so it's not simply a friend network. It's also an intellectual conversation that kind of predated the volume in a way that was really import important to me because it, it moved my thought along in my own work. Uh, both talking to people and then editing their work has been like just generative for me in an incredible way. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And, but, you know, this is the other thing that now we face with COVID, it, it, both COVID and climate change is the question of whether conferences are going to happen again or in the same way. And if they aren't, how are we going to have these generative conversations? I think it's something we have to figure out now. Um, and I'm really concerned about that because, uh, the, you know, the kind of one of the most vital parts of being in this profession is having those conversations with people about their work and what they're thinking about and how they perceive the world. And, um, I, I, that's something that I've missed in the last couple of months. I mean, yes, we have Zoom meetings and some of it is, is good and interesting, but it's not the same as like sitting over a beer and talking to someone about what they do, you know? That's when the real intellectual magic happens. I heard <laughs> in a feminist uh, affect workshop through the journal of Feminist Media Histories a few weeks ago, and it was all via Zoom. And, you know, there were um, auditors, I guess, people who weren't on camera who could pose questions through the chat thread. You know, it's a familiar format by now. And it was quite long for a Zoom conference, um, but I, it was incredibly generative, obviously, through the papers and the um, subsequent discussion. But just like kind of sitting in my desk chair and being aware of like my, um, you know, like, like uh, decapitated head reaction shot bubble on the screen while even while other people were talking and presenting was so physically exhausting. And then at the end, it was like brilliant because it had been an exhilarating event, but it was really anticlimactic too, because there's this expectation, there's this energy like, all right, now the real conversation is going to happen when we all go out for beer and dinner. And then it was like, oh, I got to like walk my dog. Yeah. Like I got to feed my kids dinner. Like, see ya. <laughs> so yeah, how do we how yeah. do we recreate that given the likelihood of well, frankly, what I think is going to happen is things will evolve. Things always evolve. It's not that the old ways are going to completely die away. It's just that there are going to be some things that are going to continue forward the way 
They are now just because some maybe the paradigm has shifted enough for certain things. And other things will go back to the way they were. I don't, you know, I think we all agree that we're a social creature. We are social creatures at heart. And I know that you're not the only one who has told me, Maggie, that uh, you find it exhausting to participate so much having to do it via online, particularly with Zoom and other things. And there is the distraction factor as well. So there's no question, I think, that uh, people will go back to what they want to go back to. And it's just unfortunate that uh, this happened the way it did. But in the end, maybe that's a good thing because things will be uh, – will be reviewed and, and will also be reborn in, in some way and maybe for the better. And maybe it'll also give people a better chance of being included, people who can't necessarily make a lot of conferences. So I guess there's a positive aspect on that. People can participate who normally in the past may not have participated. That's a really good point. And the kind of increased discussion and awareness already of accessibility issues has been a very positive development of the uh you know, current limitations for sure. So the book, we we we're, we're got onto a lot of tangents, which is not a bad thing. It just means that we need to come back to the book. Um, the, the book is in three parts, and you've got your essays broken up into those three parts. But besides your introduction, you also had a separate chapter called The Politics of Objection. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to let you, whichever one of you wants to start talking about this chapter, uh, pronounce the author's name because I don't want to – to, to butcher it. So uh, I don't know which one of you wants to talk a little bit why this particular chapter, which obviously is being presented outside the individual parts, it's presented as almost a second introduction. So uh, who wants mm. to talk a little bit about that first essay? I can say something briefly and then Nick, maybe you can, um, uh, what's the, what's this, pass the baton to you. Um so Sylvain Latringer um, translated uh, the Bataille essay that we kind of cite and ex- engage with extensively from 34 um, Abjection and Miserable Forms, which, you know, wasn't even, um, you know, wasn't widely discussed, say, when Kristeva was writing Powers of Horror hadn't been translated into English. And we initially, in earlier phases of the volume, before we ran up against uh, the word count, had hoped to include... Um, fragments and ep- excerpts of key texts and maybe less visible texts on abjection. We were, we were exploring different formats for the volume, um, some of which we included, like being able to um, uh, include the comic by the original comic by Mark Mulroney. But um, when we emailed Latringer for permission to use his translation, he responded, you know, generously agreeing and also saying, hey, I have this unpublished essay on Bataille, kind of contextualizing the essay itself that I wrote in like the 1990s. Um, it's yours if you want it. <laughs> right? That's the politics of abjection. And it was a little bit shorter than the other chapters in the volume. And it was really covering different ground. Um, it was a different kind of piece. It didn't quite make sense in any of the other sections. And, you know, we worked with I mean, it was, it's it's a brilliant essay, and we worked with Latinger a little bit to rework it for the present moment. Um, but that's uh, uh, why it's um, placed where it is in the format. It wasn't originally solicited for the volume; it kind of fell into our lap. Yeah, I'll only add that you know, in terms of the way we structured the volume, it seemed like a, a, a 
as with our introduction, uh, a better frame than actually content to any of the sections because it doesn't really take out performativity or aesthetics in the same way that the other parts do, um, uh, or bodies. It's kind of a more uh, historical overview, and so we wanted to to, have to lead with it, and also to give due respect to you know his work in terms of setting this up for us. Mm. Um, so, uh, and the other thing that I like about the Mark Mulroney piece is that. Um, it's in black and white because of the limitations of financing for the volume, but we have a website uh, that's listed in the, in the uh, right on the acknowledgements page that can take you to the color version of it, which is really worth checking out. Yeah. So obviously then that takes us into the actual structure. So you, you, you're in three parts. The first one, as you just pointed out, Nick, when you were describing uh, the first essay, uh, the first part is performances, the second part is bodies, and the third part is aesthetics. Um, and you give a little bit of reasoning, you know, you give some additional wording to, to help uh, explain each part, and you do so in the introduction as well. Now, obviously, you've each wrote, written for the book as well, but let's see if we can f feature a little bit about each part real briefly so that we can uh, give people another chance to get an understanding of of what's involved. So part one, abject performances, there's three, three essays. Maggie, you've done one. And then, um, as we've already talked about, Michelle Cho chose on South Korean film comedy. And then Rebecca Wanzo did one on, or excuse me, Wanzo did one on uh, girl comedy and specified, you know, specifically Lena Dunham and Issa Rae. So uh, that first part, and I'll start with Maggie since you're included in that first part, <laughs> What was the hope with those essays as far as describing and, and illustrating abject performances? Yeah, I guess so. Um, the the subdivisions are, are somewhat loose, but these three essays really belong together. We're all talking about relatively recent contemporary um, uh, feminist popular comedies that heavily feature tropes of abjection and kind of thinking about what that means. These are the larger questions of feminism, um, capitalism, and kind of um, uh, intersectional dif difference. So Michelle Cho, um, popular abjection and gendered embodiment in South Korean film comedy, right? She talks about embodiment. It could have gone in the next section on abject bodies, but the essays on that section um, end up taking a really different tack. So um, Cho in particular is looking at um, two South Korean film comedies, 200 Pounds Beauty, which is uh, hilarious, um, haunting, and um, My Sassy Girl, and thinking about how, um, you know, kind of like gross out romantic comedies about female abjection sort of play a foil in the context of um, uh, late capitalist South Korean culture for anxieties about changing gender roles and the fragmentation of uh, masculine norms that ultimately these comedies serve even while they have, you know, like images of women um, vomiting on the sub on the subway, um, shitting in the street and all these other sort of crude tropes of abjection. They ultimately serve a kind of conservative ideological function and Rebecca Wanzo's piece, uh, which is really focused on millennial comedies of abjection, and she has a really brilliant kind of comparison between 
Lena Dunham's Girls, which is just kind of like a millennial popular feminist abjection comedy par excellence, which perhaps has not aged quite as well as Issa Rae's early web series, Awkward Black Girl. And she's particularly thinking about um, what these tropes of abjection mean for blackness. And she's engaged with um, Derek Scott's work in, in this essay. Um, and kind of thinking about abjection is sort of um, a predicate condition um, that positions millennial women as always already precarious. So also, you know, um, thinking about the neoliberal economic climate of kind of diminishing returns, um, uh, uh, weakened social safety net, declining kind of hopes for the future, cruel optimism, all of those sort of structuring conditions of our like current political moment and how those get played out um, uh, in the uh, comedic television format. Um, so that kind of tension between um, gendered comedy and um, economic abjection, as well as how um, uh, Issa Rae negotiates blackness as a condition of abjection through the kind of comedy of awkwardness in Awkward Black Girl, which especially for fans of Insecure who are listening to this, I highly recommend this essay and that you also go back and watch Issa Rae's early web series, Awkward Black Girl. And then my piece was on the TV show Inside Amy Schumer, which even though I've kind of taken a certain distance from Schumer's stand-up and her other comedic works of late, I still think the this variety series is really brilliant and that the show, the work that Schumer does on um, uh, Inside Amy Schumer is is far and above her, her recent stand-up, at least, which has become kind of uh, gimmicky, all of the sort of like bad, lazy sex jokes and that kind of thing. And in that essay, I mean, Nick was talking a little bit about um, the kind of genre coding of abjection and the extent to which it's predominantly associated with the horror genre, but also with comedy. And one thing I'm seeing in that essay is um, actually how in uh, feminist scholarship on comedy, the grotesque via uh, Bakhtin's theory of the carnivalesque is really the um, the kind of word or signifier for for theorizing a lot of these tropes that we're talking about. Not objection, which is more kind of um, uh, predominantly located in feminist scholarship on the horror genre. So thinking about some of the genre and theoretical formations of how like gross bodies appear in um, both popular film and television, but also in feminist scholarship. Now, part two, I know object bodies, the thing that object bodies, excuse me, the thing I found interesting about part two is that if I correct me if I'm wrong, but all the essays in part two, none of them are American, where the first part, two of the three dealt with American or, or you know, North American uh, work to an extent or, or completely, where in the second part, uh, you've gotten more, you've gotten more into the international part, unless I'm missing one. Um, With exception of Meredith Box, actually. Yeah, Meredith, Meredith's piece is on uh, American talking dolls for okay. the most part. Sorry. Well, you're a toy. Yeah, you're right. But anyway, um, Nick, let's let's talk a little bit with you about the second part. Um, when we talk about abject bodies, why did you feel that these particular essays, I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, talking doll, we've got uh, um, things like uh, burlesque. Uh, but what is particularly apt about these partic these essays in part two? 
Well, I think, you know, what the, what the pieces in this section of the volume all have in common is a kind of uh, calling up the question of uh, where the human begins and ends and where the animal uh, takes over and what it means to be, or, you know, another way of putting it would be, what does it mean to be a human animal? And, uh, and so that each of them are concerned with understanding uh, the forces of abjection that include some people in humanity and some people not, uh, or some things in the case of Meredith Bach with the, the talking dolls. So Iman Wang in The Animal and the Animalistic is looking at a, a brief moment in uh, uh, mainland Chinese film history in which uh, comedies were flourishing of a certain kind, social satire comedies, and in particular, those which uh, um, took up the question of humans acting as animals or of being animalistic and, and the way that then state-sponsored criticism of those films reframed that in terms of uh, the acceptable ways of portraying um, satirical objects. Uh, you know, in other words, if a government official was being, being lampooned, that had to be done in a way that they were not considered overly animal, right? Um, and in terms of Regina Meta's work, uh, uh, Maggie's already covered it in, in far better detail than I can. She's taking a look at the moment of partition uh, between India and uh, Pakistan and, and, and eventually Bangladesh, uh, and the way that photography uh, played into the separation of human forms in, in the moment of partition. And not just, not just the uh, photography itself, but how it was being discussed, and as Maggie said earlier, the ways in which it was being archivally located, so that there's this way in which visual registers become tools for inclusion or exclusion in the projects of, of nation formation at a given moment. Um, and Meredith Bach, uh, between technology and toy, is looking at the, the moment in which the, the talking doll approaches the human in, in kind of the same way that earlier iterations of the automaton, like the mechanical Turk, would feign a kind of cognition and awareness that suggested a, human, a, a fundamental humanity, but weren't actually of that thing. And the, and the kind of the methods by which different corporations patented ideas about human relations and the gendering of those things, because generally talking dolls are considered for girls and the, and the relationship between girls and speech uh, is one that is fraught, as we all too well know these days. Um, and then James is, is, is really interesting. It's the one that is most directly engaged with Bataille, as, as uh, Maggie was saying earlier. Um, and James is taking up the, the kind of the, uh, what he calls a burlesque natural history, basing it on things of like, what if we consider the, the, the big toe as the morphological constant between species rather than some other thing that we would recognize as being driving taxonomy on a more regular basis? Or what happens when we compare ourselves to pigs rather than apes? Mm -hmm. um, this kind of assumption that, that you know, kind of taking apart all the assumptions we have about what, what has historically constituted humanity uh, in a simultaneously theoretically nuanced and kind of hilarious take on, um, on uh Human development, and and I think this is one of the things that's really interesting about Bataille and why both of us have been drawn, and James have been drawn to him, which is that he has he theorizes laughter quite extensively, and the notion of laughter as a destructive and deconstructive act um, that's really important both in this piece and in the volume. And then finally, uh, why in abject art? Uh, Mark Mulroney is an artist um, uh, in uh, upstate New York, uh, who is another friend. Uh, 
who did, does a piece on um, learning about sex in Catholic school. <laughs> and, you know, the, and it's very much about like, you know, becoming aware of oneself as embodied, as having a body and the meaning that, that is placed on that body. And, you know, he, he very much does the child's take on, this is the bizarre information I was given out, out, out of the gate in terms of what it meant to be a boy, you know? And so all of them are about, you know, one's relationship to embodiment and humanity in that sense. Mm. Maggie, is there anything you want to add to that? No, that was beautiful, Nick. That was so concise and you covered a lot of ground. So then finally, part three, abject aesthetics. Um, Four essays, including one by Nick, which, um, as we've already somewhat talked about, but to mention that this one dealt with EC Comics, which if you know anything about the comics, history of comic books, the EC period is still one of the most interesting periods in comic history as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and then there's a few other essays. Uh, Nick, bef- before I let Maggie talk about this section, was there anything you wanted to mention specifically about your essay? Well, um, my essay is, a, it's, it's, as we say in the business, PLP, part of a larger project, um, and mm-hmm. which I described to you earlier. And I just, you know, I, I grew up with EC Comics, as I'm assuming you did, Joel, and the kind of the wry take on conformist Cold War core culture that Mad Magazine gave us and the kind of irreverence that the EC brand in general uh, gave us was like one of the formative elements uh, in my, my, my being as a person. I remember talking to the scholar Henry Jenkins about this, and we both agreed that like the two big things for us as kids um, – as young white men in America in, in the sixties were Mad Magazine and Star Trek. You know, these are the things that gave us a sense of uh, the shortcomings of the, of what we were being taught in the school and the chance to think outside of the realms of normative behavior. Um, And so this particular volume kind of takes up uh, EC comics and it's, and it's fans in particular and asks, you know, what is, what is it about this moment um, that spurred this greater reverence. And, you know, a lot of it is, you know, is um, William Gaines himself and Harvey Kurtzman himself and, and that whole, and Al Feldstein. But it's also just remembering that that was a moment of incredibly informative horror, the post-war period. You know, we, the, the horrors of the Holocaust were being revealed to people uh, who had not been fully aware of the details of it. We witnessed the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, and in the case of Americans, we perpetrated that bombing um, and then eventually went into the Vietnam War. And it was a, it's, it's the, the degree to which we had to accommodate ourselves to the horror of our own existence, I think, has never been fully explored. And so I try to do a little bit of that in this volume to talk about kind of the abject horror behind the horror comics, which, you know, the Comics Code outlawed quite quickly because they were actually just too horrific for young minds we were taught, you know. And those of us who had young minds at the time felt very much otherwise. So that's what I'll say about that. It's, it's interesting. Mad Magazine, as far as I'm concerned, was the true underground comic of the period before underground comics actually came into existence because – like good, like most good written material, whether it be artwork or, or other kinds of materials, even though it was presented as pure comedy, there was a lot of satire and a lot of truth underneath a lot of what was appearing in Mad Magazine. And I definitely remember it from the 60s and 70s. Well, and also, you know, uh, Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder like were the sponsors and mentors of that a whole generation, particularly of the men. Um, 
So Art Spiegelman, uh, Art Crumb, uh, a lot of uh, those folks uh, actually started working for for him, for Kurtzman in particular, but also for Will Elder. So they they not only were the aesthetic presenters, but they actually you know helped bring that generation around. Yeah, it's a it's a great chapter. It's a brilliant piece. Another nice thing about working with Nick on the volume, we both read inked so many different versions of each other's essays, which really really evolved over you know, the, the years. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, a luxury to be able to receive such thoughtful feedback on so many rounds of one's writing as I received from Nick also on mine. Amen. Amen. And, and I'm so glad that you got that still of Amy Schumer's heads exploding in the volume. Oh my God. That really just like sums it all up, doesn't it? A lot of a lot of decapitation work going on. I mean, like uh, both both critical, right? Unthinking all of our ideological assumptions until our heads explode, and also figurative and literal. Just a lot of images of decapitation across these pages. It's really nice. I think we actually we have three more titles. We just need to give a shout out to before we our own stuff. That's okay. Uh, Maggie, you want to do that, or should I? Oh yeah, sure. Oh, thank you for reminding us to talk about the last three essays in part three on abject aesthetics, structure, form, and system. And um, I'll do my best to be concise because I know we're running out of time. Uh, Eugenie Brinkema, um, who, if you're not familiar with her work already, she wrote The Form of Aesthetics. She's kind of going for like a radical formalist reading of um, uh, um, aesthetic culture. So her chapter is focused on uh, the photo books and films of Larry Clark, who's probably best known for kids, which are full of abject images, but she's kind of pushing back against some of the moves Nick and I make in the volume, but what she sort of perceives to be a misrecognition of Kristeva's theory itself that reduces the abject to a kind of state of things, a set of objects. And so her formalist reading of abjection really looks at it as a form of... Um, uh, downcasting, and she describes abjection as, um, uh, um, in, in terms of sincerity, uh, frankness, openness. So her, the wager of her essay is really a kind of refusal to assimilate the excess associated with abjection into the symbolic order, which she performs textually through her engagement with Larry Clark in ways that I couldn't begin to describe. Her writing is poetic. If you've ever heard a conference paper, you kind of have to let the language wash over you. But then there's so much substance to her readings um, and they're they're fun to disagree with. If you know, I don't always. You know, and hell, she takes us up on the kind of a lot of the, um, you know, major assumptions of the volume, which is which is always uh, really important to have uh, debates. So we're not just all agreeing with each other. Um, and I guess Tom Lamar's essay on uh Japanese uh, shoujo manga that's uh, particularly marketed to teenage girls. He's kind of looking at uh, ugly feelings, drawing on Sian Nai's work, her book, Ugly Feelings, um, such as uh, irritation, as well as um, frustration, anxiety, even loathing, as kind of the affective motors of how um, Manga is serialized, right? Both for a national readership, but also um, uh, globally. So it's again a kind of systemic, structural, formal reading of the abject. Uh, sorry, the affective mechanisms that are popular in shoujo, shoujo manga. And he talks about. I mean, like 
Um, I, I'm not intimately familiar with the genre, but some of the scenarios he describes are really quite striking, like one about a girl who agrees to pretend to be a dog. So the guy she has a crush on will um, uh, pretend to be her boyfriend. It's really, um, it's really quite something. And then last but not least, um, and we've already mentioned this essay a little bit, Rob King's tour de force powerhouse essay on uh, Louis C.K. And uh, King is working with um, Deleuze's writing on the logic of sense to explore the kind of dialectic between abjection and absurdism across CK's work, going back to CK's like early surrealist films like um, uh, Ice Cream. And I uh, forget what some of the other ones are called. Uh, yeah, and, and, he, and, and King is um, really thinking about what that tension means, the dialectic between abjection, right? Like CK's sort of like wallowing shtick, like look at like, you know, I, I waited online for a cinnamon roll and then like the, the only one left was on the floor and I ate it anyway, I'm such a fat schlub. But then how he tries to like, um, uh, convert or parlay that endemic abjection into some kind of, um, I don't know, spiritual um, transcendence, which happens on the level of absurdism that sort of takes flight from the body and how much like those tensions are the driving force of the show. But then, you know, how, how absurdism itself fell short in the wake of 2017, hashtag me too, when he could no longer um you know, parlay his predatory abjection into transcendent abstraction, which was a nice kind of meta framing that King really rewrote um, uh, in late, very late phases of the essay in the wake of the scandal. So I think, I don't know, Nick, is there anything you want to add to those last three? No, I'm just going to shout back uh, the, the praise, you know, and, and say this is like, you just witnessed why it was so great to work with Maggie, both in terms of co-editing and reading your work, Maggie, is you take incredibly complicated and nuanced the theoretical paradigms and, and make them so accessible and so clear. It's just like, it's a joy to listen to it, honestly. Thank you. Seriously, likewise, Nick. We, we, we egg each other on in, in uh, generative ways that are hopefully not too abject. <laughs> <laughs> just abject enough. <laughs> just abject enough. Amen. Well, it was great, like I say, that we were able to talk about this. Um, I really appreciate both of your time with this. Um, I hope things continue to, that hope continues for both of you, that hopefully as we get into this later into the summer and into the fall, that things work out the best for both of you and for both your students, your profession, everything aspect, because um, I know it's going to be different, but at least uh, we uh, are all thinking about it. And sometimes I think that's the most important thing to do. Amen. Yeah. Thank you again, Joel, for your. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Maggie and Nick for their insight. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.